Neil Gooding is an international theatre director, producer and writer. He was the originating chairman and one of the founding members of the Hayes Theatre Company in Sydney. And he is the head of New Musicals Australia and has also established his own company, Neil Gooding Productions. As a producer, Neil's work internationally includes Back to the Future, the musical at Manchester Opera House, the New York production of Handle with Care starring Carol Lawrence, The 39 Steps with Union Square Theatre, Alan Cummings' one-man version of Macbeth, and Church and State with New World Stages, New York City. Neil is also the author of the musical Back to the 80s, which is now produced hundreds of times around the world every year, as well as the newly released Pop Stars. Next week, he premieres a new musical, Who's Your Bag Daddy or How I Started the Iraq War. But in the current COVID-19 restriction, this stage musical has been reimagined to be performed online. It's a daring new way to reach an audience, but necessity is often the mother of invention. Neil Gooding joined us from New York to discuss the show and a trajectory in the theatre that is reaping great rewards. So hello to you in New York City, uh, Neil Gooding. In what has to be uh, the most precarious of times, how long have you been over there uh, for this visit? Uh, So I moved to New York uh, about a year ago full-time and that was after, I guess, a decade of coming over for various projects or coming over just to see what's happening in New York and to have meetings. Uh, And in the year that I've been here, I've kind of been... Uh, backwards and forwards between Australia and London with various projects. Uh, but actually, I was in Australia for three months uh, leading up to... I did I did a show at the Hayes Theatre Company called The Life of Us, which was a new Australian musical. And then uh, I opened the Australian premiere of The Bridges of Madison County, also at the Hayes, on March the 11th. So kind of uh, flew out uh, to, you know, to New York with high ambitions of taking on the world. And uh, by the time I got to LA airport, I checked my mobile phone and Broadway had been shut down with the coronavirus. And so I got into JFK at about 4.30 that afternoon and uh, wandered into um, you know, Times Square to see the, the carnage of empty theatres and dark lights. And, and that's been life ever since. It's been you know, three months of quarantine and uh, planning new projects and doing what you can in a, in a shutdown, but um, no, no one really knows at this point when theatres will be allowed to open, either here or in Australia, and you know, in, under what conditions, you know, what what sort of capacities and what sort of social distancing rules and and all those, um, you know, very very important things, but also uh, very dull and and um, very depressing things if you're a theatre producer. Yeah, the circumstances are e- extraordinary. Um, and it's also people having the confidence to go back into theatres or, or having the, the financial capacity to go back and enjoy a show as well. So uh, what's your prediction? Do you, do you think it's going to be next year sometime? I know that the producers here in Australia have been saying, you know, they won't do anything till June or July in 2021. Yeah, I think Australia will be back before that. Like, I think there'll be certain shows that are allowed to open before that. Uh, like I said, I'm just not sure what the you know, the, I'm not part of the conversations while I'm over here in Australia. So whether or not there's going to be uh, full capacity allowed when it reopens, New York is a much more complicated beast because there's so many unions involved and, you know, the complexity between theater owners and, and also just the idea that that the whole financial model of New York is that 65 to 70% of the tickets on Broadway are sold to 
you know, non-New Yorkers. And right now, I mean, they're not here and it's hard to know when they'll be back, to be honest, because, you know, New York has got a bit of a PR crisis on its hands because the, the world has, I, I think, I mean, having lived in the, through the pandemic in New York, it's been, um, you know, very trying and there's been a lot of horrible things that have been happening, but, but the images that have gone around the world where you, where you see mass graves and you see trucks at hospitals, they happen, but that, that is not the day-to-day life in New York. But I think that will have a lasting damage on tourism here. And without tourism, Broadway under its current model is, is going to have a, a, a potentially hard recovery, I'd imagine. You're in uh, Hell's Kitchen, I think, aren't you? Yeah, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Can you describe the, the, the city for me around that particular neighbourhood at the moment? Because, you know, New York seems to be going from ghost town and then uh, full streets as people come out to, to protest. Yeah, the, well, that's right. I mean, I, I was surprised at the fact that Hell's Kitchen uh, had shut down. I thought it was going to be one of the more resilient areas for, for restaurants and bars to at least do takeout and, and street dining. Um, and it closed really quickly after March the 12th. And I think right now, and I mean, and these things are changing day by day over here, but I think the, the end result of the protests and, and, you know, everything that's gone on around that and the fact that so many people gathered back into the streets for, you know, for so many reasons, on the weekend that's just gone past, Hell's Kitchen looked like a street party at certain points. Like the, every, every bar was serving frozen margaritas and um, there was many people on every street corner and social distancing and masks seem to be a thing of the past. So I, I do, I suspect we are entering a phase where the quarantine is essentially over for the population at, at least mentally, even if it's not really medically what should be happening. As an impresario, you produce and, and develop a lot of new work. And I guess a motivation is to realize some sort of financial reward, but that must be paired with an enormous passion for theatre. Yeah. I mean, I grew up, you know, I don't think there's any producer or not, certainly not what I would call the lead producers or creative producers. I think one of the myths about that is that they're money men and they just are in it to make a buck. Cause to be honest, if you want to make a living or if you want to make a lot of money, don't do theater. Like you, you, know, you could, you could go and build anything or you could, you know, there's so, um, so yeah, I mean, I've met very few producers at the top of their game that don't love theater. And that's because we all grew up in it to some extent. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a, in a town called Eyre in North Queensland where we had this rare luxury, like a lot of the, the um, regional towns up the Queensland coast did in the 80s into the early 90s, which we were a town of 10,000 people and we had a 530-seat theatre with full proscenium towers and fly lines. And, and so, you know, I, I essentially grew up in that theatre. My parents both, you know, performed there and, and worked there. But that was also where we did our youth theatre group stuff and we did our school musicals and this ridiculously beautiful venue. And, you know, if you sold eight performances of your show out, that was 40% of the town had seen the show. And, uh, and it took me years to realise that, you know, not till I went to Brisbane for university and then came to Sydney, that, that you know, as you start doing sort of the, the more community-based musicals of going, oh, the theatres that we all grew up in in North Queensland are completely not how the world works. We were totally spoilt. And I think, you know, uh, Matthew Robinson's and the Andy Conahans of the world that grew up in Rockhampton and the people that came out of Cairns and Townsville, we all have the same story, which is that we thought everybody gets to do every theatre show they ever do. 
in these amazing venues. And then it was not till we got to the capital cities that we went, oh, suddenly we're in church halls and, you know, school halls and, and, um, and, and had to realign our brains to, to realise just how spoiled we, we were. I love that the character of, um, it's probably a bit taboo now, but Chief Sitting Bull in, in Annie Get Your Gun, in that, that famous line of, you know, Chief Sitting Bull lives by three rules. Don't drink fire water, don't drink red meat, and don't put money in show business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and of course the producers made that, you know, legendary with the never put your own money in the show, uh, which I've got to say is not an adage that I have ever found worked for me. Like, um, I I basically have found a way to fund most of my shows and sometimes with investors. Um, but I don't think there's not many people that get the luxury in Australia of just going, I, I'm never going to put a dollar of my own money into a show. Like it, it's very, very rare that you get to build a career and, and not take that risk. And that changes, you know, show by show. And, and to be honest, it changes with various stages of your life. Like I, I had the, the, um, the great fortune, I guess, to write a musical when I was 23 that's performed around the world and was very kind to me financially in terms of the royalties that came in. So I was able to use that money to, to, to take a very, you know, non-commercial and non-financial pathway through the next 10 years of my life, producing shows like The Hat Pin by James Miller and Peter Rutherford. And, and that led to a, a lot of new Australian works, which is just not a way to make a living in Australian theatre because, um, and that's partly why I'm in New York now, but also being in New York now, I've been through a phase of having had a, you know, a marriage separation and my finances changed completely to the point that I now do have investors around me and, and it changes the mix of what I can do. Like there's some shows that I see that I think are just brilliant, but I also know they're going to lose all of their money. And there was a phase of my life when I used to take my own money and go, you know what, I'm happy to lose the money. I love that show. And now that I'm dealing more with other people's money, as well as some of my own mixed in, that's how I end up in shows like Back to the Future, which I think is, you know, it's going to be a really great show. And it's going to, I think it's going to be a commercial hit. But there's a phase of my life that I'm in now where I have to make different artistic and financial decisions on what I get involved with, um, just based on the fact I'm not using my own money. Ultimately, you're going to have a belief in the product, don't you? Because you never know if you're about to produce the next Annie or Hamilton or Phantom of the Opera, which... Um... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, would, I don't think I've ever done it, but I would really struggle to jump onto a show that I don't love and have some connection with. Like, even, even if I thought that show was going to make millions of dollars, if I don't think it's a good show, I, I wouldn't do it. But the beauty of being in New York at the moment is um, I feel like the last five to 10 years have been an era where shows that I love and that are darker and smaller and just don't feel as commercial as something like Pretty Woman, the musical going under Broadway. So, you know, they've been the hit shows and they've been the surprise shows that are recouping things like Come From Away, um, Hadestown, Dear Evan Hansen, The Band's Visit. I mean, that, that's a really, even, even Hamilton prior to its opening, it, it's a, it's an odd little show in its construction uh, done brilliantly, but I don't think anybody would have predicted that a, a story about, you know, the, the, one founding, the founding fathers, fathers of, of America could become the hit that it's become, you know, but particularly when it's up against things like, well, here comes a revival of hello Dolly, or here comes 
Pretty Woman the Musical, they, Pretty Woman the Musical seems like a much more obvious global hit. And yet Hamilton was just artistically brilliant. And, and, and I feel like that is celebrated over here more. And it's also not so much that even celebrated. There's just a structure that allows those shows, new shows to become the next Broadway hit and become a commercial hit um, in a way that is still difficult in Australia because of our size and our resources and just our structure of how we, you know, the sort of the separation between our subsidized theater companies to some extent and our theaters and commercial producers um, that is quite often more integrated in New York. And those shows also found ways to speak to a new generation of audience, whether it be uh, through the style of music with, with Hamilton or a show like Wicked, which is sort of every little girl's and some little boy's story. Yeah, and that's the history of, of, of I think, musical theatre in New York, but probably globally, like going back to, you know, I would say Carousel found a new way of talking to an audience at the time and, and, and you know, um, Showboat did. And then as you move forward, more into sort of, you know, I guess my generations of shows, that was Rant and that's now Hamilton and Dear Evan Hansen and, and all those shows that sort of, I guess, redefine musical theatre for their specific niche of time. And then it, it, like Hair did, in the, you know, at one point. So, so I, I, and, you know, I don't think it's much of a coincidence that most of those shows, and, and of course, like Company, I think, redefined how musical theatre stories are told. And absolutely all of those have started in New York. You know, not, not that London doesn't contribute because it absolutely does, but, but I, I think the, the genre is changed in New York from time to time by a show like Hamilton when it pops up. Let's talk about a, a venue in Sydney, which you've had uh, quite a lot to do with o- over the years. I'm talking about the Hayes Theatre Company, um, which yeah. has been a great incubator for, for new work and also for um, celebrating the, the musical and, and cabaret forms. You were the originating chairman and, and founding members, weren't you? Yeah, that's right. The, the Hayes kind of, I mean, I now view it like my, I'm no longer on the, the board. That's Lisa Campbell's the chairman now, but I still, uh, you know, I still do some of the programming there and, and run the uh, the New Musicals Australia program that's now being rebranded. But uh, I miss it like a baby that I'm watching grow up, you know, in its absence. But it was sort of the end result of a number of years and attempts to try and find a consistent home in Sydney in particular for small to medium scale musical theatre to sit. Like I, the, the seed of it really was that, you know, uh, my company and a number of independent little companies had been doing various shows at, at various venues and I think doing them well. But the problem was that, you know, we'd pop up at one venue and then a show would run for four weeks and then you'd move to the next venue. So like the hat pin was at the Seymour Center and, and you know, Gutenberg the musical was somewhere else. And then Scobologic would do a show over here somewhere. So, so there was, um, I, I think there was a, a, a point in time after the hat pin where I realized that I was getting bought most of the new Australian musicals because I, the hat pin was probably the first one of any scale to go on for quite a long time. And suddenly it changed the path of my career because suddenly everybody that had ever written an Australian musical was, was bringing them to me. And it became clear that, to do that to some extent, uh, you may be better off to set up a not-for-profit company, which I had never been involved with, because then you could apply for, for government funding and you could apply for sort of development funding, which you just don't get if you're a commercial theatre producer. 
Um, and so that led to me setting up a, a thing called In the Pipeline with uh, Chris Stewart was involved in that and Simone Parrott, Michael Huxley and Graham Miller. And that was really an attempt to go, let's get a not-for-profit organisation that, that uh, allows us to you know, get work submitted to us. And if we find the ones we really love, we can go to the Australia Council, we can go to Arts New South Wales and try and start putting some structure around how the heck you develop musicals in Australia other than just getting talented people to sit around a coffee table and, and read a script in a very unresourced way. Um, and so what happened was that as, after we set that up and we were starting to move that, uh, Justin um, McDonald did a review into the funding of musical theatre in Australia and, and the Australia Council listened to that and they suddenly, out of nowhere really, came up with a, a fund of money that was to sort of help an organisation to put some sort of development into musicals rather than going, we're going to put it on stage. It was to step right back and go, let's make sure the works are, are well crafted and well written and as, as well workshopped as they can be. Um, and at that point, uh, the Australia council, that, that money went to century venues. So Greg Curry and Greg Curry came to Chris Stewart and said, would you come and help us distribute this money and look after the program? And Chris Stewart came to me and said, Let's go and do what we're trying to do within the pipeline and go over here where the money is. And so that was the start of what was called New Musicals Australia. And it ran at Sidetrack Theatre uh, in Marrickville for uh, two or three rounds of programs. And then during that time, um, it, it became, we, we sort of learnt that the Darlinghurst Theatre, as it was known then, was going to be up for tender because Glenn Terry and the Darlinghurst Theatre Company were going to the, the um, their new theatre, now, now called the Eternity Playhouse. And so the process started to try and make sure that that space wasn't turned into a set of apartments, which was very much on the cards until Clover Moore and Larry Galbraith stepped in to save the space, and thank God they did. Um, and then there was a tender process, and I think at that point, I, uh, you know, that some of our team had changed a little bit, but I sort of went to a few people, which included Lisa and David Campbell and... Uh, J. James Moody and Jessica James Moody at Squabber Logic, and um, and we sort of and Richard Carroll came into that, and Michelle Guthrie, and a group of us that had been producing musicals around Sydney, and I think we all kind of got together and said we probably have one shot here to get a venue for musical theatre, and let's not have multiple bids from multiple producers for the same idea. So we all kind of banded together, and that really was the start of the haze. I mean, we got the venue. Um, and then we had this chaotic couple of months. So we found out we got it. And I think, I think we knew in, I think we actually got to go into the building in oh, October would be my guess. And we also knew that we were opening Sweet Charity on February the 7th. And so we had this absolutely chaotic couple of months where, you know, God love them. The, the Australia's theater, musical theater performers in particular are the best. So, so, I can still picture David Harris with a paintbrush in the foyer and, and so many people like David and Lisa had just had their son Leo and my daughter was in there with a paintbrush and, and there were just performers coming in and we had to, we had to redo the foyer. We had to re repaint the theater. Um, and to be honest, you know, sweet charity was opening or previewing and we were madly putting paintbrushes away and trying to shove things into drawers. And we had plans like business plans of, 
this is how we are going to build an audience because we always believed there was an untapped musical theatre audience that they love the big musicals, they love theatre, but they will specifically come and watch what I would call off-Broadway or, you know, edgier musical theatre. But we also thought that would take us three to five years to, to find that audience and to, you know, get them to love what we did and to trust us. And Sweet Charity changed that almost instantly. Like, you know, we, like I said, we, I'm not even sure that any of us watched the first preview because I think we were still cleaning up. I, I, we were standing at the back of the theatre watching it and that first audience came out of Sweet Charity and I think we all went, whoa, what just happened? And the second audience erupted and came out. And, and it's easy to forget in hindsight. I mean, there was a lot of scepticism about how the heck do you do a show like Sweet Charity in a, in a 111 seat theatre with a stage space that, you know, only allows a cast of, 10 or 11 and how do you do those dance routines and and what Dean Bryant and Andy Hallsworth and, and that cast did with that show you know really helped define it and and also what I've got to say what um Andrew Warboys did musically really laid down a template for what what can you do with a much reduced orchestration but filled out and um it's just kept rolling from strength to strength and it's now, apart from giving producers and new directors and new choreographers a home to play in and to experiment and to learn their craft, it's also then allowed a space where New Musicals Australia eventually, that program stopped and we were able to go to the Australia Council and say, that program was working. You know, uh, we now have a home for musical theatre. Please give us a program where we can start receiving submissions from all around Australia for New Musicals and we can start looking after writers and we can start looking after their works and developing it and for me personally, I mean, I, I love the shows I've done at the Hayes, which was I was one of the producers of Sweet Charity. I did Dogfight there. I did Truth, Beauty, Picture of You. High Fidelity recently did Bridges of Madison County. But the fact that we now have a program at that theatre that has led to at least one, if not two, new Australian musicals going on stage every year, um, I hope that legacy will, will be long-lasting. And productions that have taken off also to uh, have national tours and appear on main stages around the country, um, signifying yeah. to people that something very special happens at the Hayes. Yeah, and I think that's easy to forget as well. I mean, like I said, all, the, all of the board and all the people that set that up and that worked on the shows, we're, we're proud of all of that. But it's, it's easy to forget, even to forget six years ago when we set the place up, there, there were no musicals touring regional Australia. There were no musicals that, that weren't the big commercial musicals even touring really between Brisbane, Melbourne, Sydney, Adelaide. Um, and, you know, over the history of the Hayes, obviously Sweet Charity, like I said, that, that just was a game changer because the fact that our first musical went on a national tour the year after. Um, and then it's been some of our shows that have toured and, and just even then some of the shows that producers have brought to us, like uh, Endemarkey with Blood Brothers went to, to Melbourne um, Little Shop of Horrors went on a, a quite a full tour. Calamity Jane went on a very full tour. Richard has had Spamalot out. Uh, American Psycho has a life out of the theatre. So that there's not many times I get to do a podcast and actually sit down and, and have a think about it and talk because I'm usually just moving to the next thing. But, but um, yeah, I, I do feel like the whole small to medium touring model that exists for musicals now, it's easy to forget that there just wasn't one seven years ago. And that's been a, a huge change. 
And the repertoire that's offered also, I mean, Caroline or Change, Crybaby, I mean, there's probably not the big commercial producers in Australia who would uh, risk their, their finances, resources, producing shows like that. But you can see shows like that at the Hayes and um, tick that off your, your, I must see that before I die list. <laughs> yeah, and I always feel like that was the missing niche that we always knew was there because, you know, if we were prior to the Hayes, it's not like we were trying to produce the Book of Mormon or 42nd Street in smaller venues. We all loved those shows that open in New York and are critically acclaimed here, or, but, they're, but they're not on the scale of what um, the big commercial theatre producers in Australia need them to be. Like, because what we get on our stages in Australia into our biggest theatres, they've taken five to ten years to be developed and they were one of a hundred other shows that was trying to go to Broadway in that era. And by the time Wicked becomes Wicked and has been running on Broadway for years, it's coming into Australia as a bona fide hit and it's going to be a carbon copy of the Broadway production. And there's all these other shows that ex explore the, the width and the breadth and the depth of musical theatre. Because for, for anyone that, and I hate the argument that people, I argue against it all the time, but people that go, oh, musicals are all light and frivolous and sequins and dancing. And I sort of always argue going, that's not even true if you name the top 10 musicals in the world. I mean, that's not Les Miserables. That's not West Side Story. That's not The Phantom of the Opera. That's not, you know, uh, South Pacific or Oklahoma or all of them are, much darker than anybody. Chorus line is the classic example where everybody remembers one song and it's all glitzy and golden. And then you go, the rest of the show is a dark, slightly pessimistic exploration of the difficulties of being a performer and life on the stage. Um, so, so yeah, so the chance, to, I, I, if you look back through the history of the shows that were done at the Hayes, I feel like not only were those musicals always missing in the sense that, for fans of musical theatre, they're still going to love The Book of Mormon. They're still going to love Wicked. But they want to see all of these other shows that, that test the boundaries of musical theatre. Some of them are more, are more like plays with music. Some of them are just totally dark pieces. And some are off-the-wall, zany, fun. Um, but I think what the Hayes did was to give it a place where those shows could be pitched by producers, could let young directors or new directors play with the genre like like you know alex Bellage has popped up in the last few years where he he needed the quirky shows like reinventing crybaby and taking on american psycho and then i think the thing that hayes does is largely we've done the shows really really well and and then because we have the audience that has come with us we can take risks now that we couldn't take in year one and two because we know we can do carolina change and thousands of people are going to buy tickets which makes it work financially whereas if we'd tried that five years ago i think seven people would have turned up and loved it but we would have all um been on the street <laughs> just listening to you i i guess it's fair to say that a, a career in the theater was always on the cards i'm certainly not known for my lack of um <laughs> my, lack, <laughs> my lack of opinions and my lack of um uh speaking ability i guess <laughs> Did you want to be an actor or at any stage or was it always, you just wanted to be a theatre maker of some sort? Oh, yeah, no, there was, a, there was a period of my life up to about the age of 23 where between sort of 13 and 23, that's all I wanted to do. And I sort of begrudgingly went to um, the University of Queensland and studied law and commerce to keep my parents happy. And, something uh, to fall back on. 
something to fall back on, which I've never <laughs> fallen back on, thank God. Um, but, and, you know, I, even during university, I was doing four or five shows a year. So my, my university marks were very ordinary, but my, um, my, my, my theatre knowledge increased enormously once I got to Brisbane, which seemed like the big smoke. After you've grown up in a town like Air, Brisbane was, you know, suddenly surrounded by you know, directors and choreographers that had done all these shows and, and heaven forbid actors that had been in professional musicals, which was the most exciting thing ever. Um, and then um, I went to Sydney after I got my commerce degree, said to my parents, right, I'm not, I'll finish off my law degree by correspondence, but I'm going to Sydney to do acting. And within about three days of being in Sydney, a friend from Brisbane was working for Jacobson's, Jacobson Entertainment, so Kevin, Kevin Jacobson called Joy. And I forget how we connected, but he said, well, we actually have a role on Beauty and the Beast if you want to come in, which was selling like group tickets, like sales for group tickets and corporate groups. And so within three or four days of being in Sydney, where I knew one person who was someone that had toured in a production of Chicago around regional Australia with me, um, and I was sleeping on her floor. I was suddenly working on Beauty and the Beast. And, and, um, but then I was still pursuing, I was still auditioning. I still wanted to be an actor. And then I, I definitely remember the, the first show that I fell in love with and wanted to produce, and I largely wanted to produce it because I wanted to direct it, was Assassins by Stephen Sondheim, that I did in uh, 2000. And that was with a cast of people that, you know, thank goodness we all met. But, about, but so that cast included James Miller, and Luke Jocelyn and um, Jennifer White, who is still my dialect coach to this day, who was a fabulous actor in her, in her day. And um, the lighting designer was Richard Neville, who now lights around the world. And so it was just this little hotbed of Sydney talent that really had no idea what we were doing, but loved the show and loved hanging out and loved. And, um, and at that point, when I started doing some auditions, I remember looking at the auditions and looking at the other actors and going, some of these are amazing and some of them just have these, these flaws in the way they audition or the way they perform. And I also sat there and went, Oh God, I know which one of those I am. And it's not the amazing category. <laughs> and, um, and, so, and so I pretty much at that point, in fact, I even think it was before that I sort of walked away from acting and sort of thought, I think I definitely think I'm cut out more for the producing and directing. And I've never missed acting since. Thank goodness. Cause like I said, there was a part of my life where I did stress about going, I really don't know what I would do if I wasn't doing acting and, for me personally, I just haven't missed it. At Jacobson's, you're working on a, a variety of entertainments. The Man from Snowy River, Arena Spectacular, Dirty yeah. Dancing, The Long Way to the Top Concert Series. Um, and you also were with Delta Goodren for a while. Yeah. Uh, what's, what skills are you acquiring from these experiences that would then feed so into guess, your I later guess, roles? I guess, yeah, I guess I went into Jacobson's with um, the commerce degree behind me and I was always good with numbers and I was always able to do budgets. And so initially in there, that was my role. I was sort of doing a, a sort of a, an accounting slash budgeting role. Um, and I, I just think what I learned from those years was I got to watch, you know, big productions that I wasn't working on, like uh, fame, the musical um, and the witches of Eastwick and just being in that office. And I was a, I was a baby. Like I was, I was 21, 22 and I just got to watch theater at the highest level get put together and, and sort of go through my own process of going, what are the things that I absolutely would do? Cause I think they're, they're running really well. And then also what are the things that I would, I was arrogant enough to go, what are the things I would never do? And I would do differently. 
And, um, and those lessons stayed with me. And, so, and something like The Man from Snow River was a baptism of fire because I was working alongside um, and a sort of a legend in, in producing is called Leslie Shaw, who ah, yes. uh, was, was <laughs> one of the most brilliant yet terrifying people until she sort of trusted you. And I remember this two weeks where Leslie didn't trust me because she didn't know who I was for a bar of soap. And, you know, every single time I went to her desk with anything, she would just go, well, why is that? And, and what's this? And, um, and it was, it was, you know, and I was absolutely out of my depth, paddling madly to try and make sure I knew what I was doing. And, and luckily I passed Leslie's test and I, you know, I sort of learnt the skills, but, um, it was a, it was a great training ground and it was just fun. I mean, the Jacobson organization was, uh, largely still a family business and, and, um, they'd survived for decades in starting with rock and roll when Cole was the, you know, Cole and Johnny O'Keefe were the pioneers of Australian rock music, pop music. And, um, and it was just an incredibly free form, uh, uh, that did very Delaguada to the Memphis Snow River to touring, you know, big acts. And, um, I'm glad it happened because I fear that a lot of people that want to do producing now don't get thrown into the same situation in quite the same way. And I, I feel like my generation that came through either, you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber's offices or Jacobson, my case, or, or, or Frosty's office. I, I think that we had a baptism of a fire. That's a bit more, a bit more structured these days, maybe, but also probably a bit less, um, a bit less interesting. Um, have there been any other uh, producers other than, than Jacobson, Kevin and Cole, who have been a source of inspiration, either locally or internationally? Yeah, I mean, sort of locally, um, I've been really lucky at certain points in being able to pick people's brains. So at one point I did some work, um, not for long, but within Michael Chugg's office. So on the concert touring side, you know, you sort of get to see how he works. Um, when I did... Uh, Delta Goodrum's tour, which was largely, I was looking at the tour accounting for, for Delta and her mother. Her mother was still managing her at that time. Um, that was being produced around Australia by Paul Dainty. So I was able to have a few times with Paul where I could just sit and pick his brains. And, and in the same way that I, I think occasionally I get the chance to, like, so Gail Edwards, bizarrely, was the director of Delta Goodrum's tour. And that was really the first time I'd met Gail properly. And, you know, that meant I had a few nights where I could, pick her brains about directing and her career. And, and I do think Australia and the U S to some extent, but it's a wonderful industry in that sense that most people are willing to tell you all of their wins and all of their losses and all of the bruises they have. And, and all of that's vital because you don't, you don't want to go into these things with this Pollyanna attitude of producing is amazing and it can never go wrong and directing everybody is always going to love every show I direct because that's how it works. You know, that that's not the reality. It can be brutal and it can be soul destroying and learning that from the best at an early age was really useful. Even then it doesn't prepare you for bad reviews for your shows. I've got to say, but, uh, but, but, but at least, at least, you know, it's a concept that can happen. <laughs> so you read reviews, do you? Oh yes. I, yeah, I, I never understand how people uh, don't read reviews. I, I admire everybody that says they don't read reviews, but but certainly as the producer on a show, I feel like I need to know um, what is being said because I can, it can sometimes help make some better producing decisions for, possibly for that show in terms of learning how to, you know, just manage a cast if a show is not getting reviewed well or they're not getting reviewed well or change your marketing slant slightly if things are not quite 
sitting or talk to the creatives about some changes as a director, uh, they're less useful for the production of the song. Cause I, I think it is a, it's a fraught um, system to go and actually start changing a show as it's running based on what reviews have said. But, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, I there's, there's really smart reviewers in Australia, most of them. And if, if I see three reviewers say the same thing about a show, uh, they tend to be right. And, 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 and sadly, you know, sometimes you're so close to a show that you just don't always see what, what an impartial viewer sees. And that, and like I said, that doesn't mean you actually go and change it all, but, but I, I, yeah, I read everything and, um, and that could be uh, totally soul destroying or, exhilarating although to be honest it's very rarely exhilarating because normally you you remember the one bad review and not the 10 good reviews you, you can sort of quote the bad review which i can still do for cameron woodhead for <laughs> um <laughs> when i did when i did uh, directed passion in melbourne that was largely well reviewed and you know it's a, it's a very it's one of sometimes more obscure and more inaccessible musicals uh, but cameron woodhead i can still quote it to this day said i guess on some level i'm glad to get the opportunity to see a show like passion on stage again, because it's done so rarely, but I would rather set myself on fire than ever have to sit through it again. <laughs> so that, that sticks with you. And I can't tell you any of the good reviews. I wish there were many for passion, but I can't tell you what they said, but I can tell you what, what that review said for passion. So. Uh, yes. The psychology of reviews. Very, very interesting. <laughs> so did it take much courage to go out and start your own company? Because in 2002, you established Neil Gooding Productions. Yeah, I actually, I actually, it kind of started in 2000 with Assassin. So I, I called that at that point, I think it was called Utopia Productions, but that basically rolled into it. And no, at the time I didn't really think about it. I mean, I, I did it young enough that I was um, young and stupid enough to just do it. And, you know, and obviously at that stage, the shows that you're doing have budgets that you can put on a credit card. And if all goes badly, you can spend the next two years paying off that credit card. And, 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 you know, the stakes just get heightened. I always say to most people, everything I learned, I kind of learned on Assassins, which is the first show I produced. Everything I kind of needed to know on a, on a big macro level that was done on that show. And, and as budgets get bigger and as shows get more complex, you know, there are more, there are more difficult things to deal with. And there's much more money around and there's more personalities to deal with, but it's essentially the same beast. Um, and a part of me does go, God, I wish I could go back to the lighthouse theater at Macquarie university with a group of friends and do assassins again. I, I would love that, <laughs> you know? Um, but no, I, I don't think setting up the company was ever a major milestone for me. I don't even remember. It was purely functional of going, I want to do this show. And to do that, I think I need to set up a company and there's just no, like this, I don't feel like it's an industry or certainly for me, I don't get much time to reflect on much and to actually think about those moments. So, you know, the pathway from there to where I am now has never been like a crafted, well-planned thing. Like the haze was never a thing. Like running a theater company was never a, was never a, a, a part of what I had planned. It just sort of came up and I think I'm pretty good at saying yes and making things work and doing the hard work that's needed to do to make them work. Um, and that's kind of been a career, I guess. And like I said, in, in the same way that when I set up the company in 2000, I didn't know the hat pin was coming in 2008 into my hands through James Miller, which again, what, what, what you can learn from this thing is the fact that James Miller was in assassins when we were all babies. And then he went off to Whopper and then because of our 
relationship over that. He then comes to me with the, you know, what he called his first draft, an unfinished draft of a show he'd written that he thought was probably terrible. And I looked at it and went, that's actually probably the best first draft of anything I've ever read. Um, so that's, you know, what I love about this industry and what can sometimes be challenging is it's about these little random moments and connections. And you either say yes to something or you say no to something or a friend brings you something that's a great idea and you decide to jump on it or not. And, um, and that's kind of this ad hoc career and body of work that ends up on a website that people think is well-crafted. And I said, they're going, it was all chaos at, at best. It was semi-controlled chaos. <laughs> it's a recurrent theme in these conversations that the, the, the pathways that people have had to, to certain careers have all been based on yeah happy accidents or you, you, you've just got to sort of, jump on the, the, the board and go for the ride and, and see where it takes you. Yeah. And occasionally you jump on a ride and you know about halfway down the ride that it's not going to work. And that, and that's the hardest thing, you know? Um, and sometimes they still go to stage and you, you know, Oh no, this just didn't, the collaboration didn't work the way I wanted it to, or the writer suddenly can't finish the show or, or whatever, whatever happens. Like it's such a, this industry is such a fine line between success and failure. And, and it relies on so many, collaborators and moving parts that all need to be functioning really well for it to to succeed or in some cases not function at all and then your show still becomes a hit and you sit there scratching your head going <laughs> how did that happen when when you know one of the best processes ever led to a show that wasn't loved by an audience or by reviewers and then so it's just it's just it's what makes the whole industry fascinating and sometimes devastating and sometimes you know it's, it's just a mix of everything how important do you think is the title of a show? Because, uh, you know, you've developed a lot of new works. Do you ever have yeah. a say in what the show can be called? Because I know that, you know, personally, I've been turned off by, you know, uh, I was on, in, in New York and uh, the Toxic Avenger was on. Yeah. And Amer American and Psycho. I thought, I don't want to see those shows until I got to the end of the list. I thought, oh, I've seen everything else. I better go and see them. And I love them. Yeah, well, I think if you ask the writers of Urinetown or yes. I certainly know, I know, I know when, I bought, uh, when I bought Gutenberg, the musical to Australia, which is uh, written by um, Scott Brown and Anthony King, who have yeah, recently collaborated with Eddie Perfect on Beetlejuice. But even by the time I was bringing Gutenberg, the musical to Australia, and I met with them in New York, they were like, yeah, look, the, title, the title's terrible. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't really work for the show. Um, it is something that I work quite closely with if it's a show that i can change like so, so many shows that you inherit you can't change the title of um and sometimes you wish you could because you know it, 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 it doesn't always do justice to the show when i'm working on new shows with writers the title is something we obsess about quite a lot uh, and even that goes right back a step where at the moment within the haze we are going through the process of um working our way through our 50 or 60 submissions of shows that have been brought to us for the uh, creative development program there. And I think one of the most useful things, because everybody wants their show to be workshops, everybody wants their show to get you know, a chunk of money, but quite often it's useful just to say to the writers, that title will never really work for you. Or did you know there's another two shows with that same title or all those? So yeah, title is really, really important. And, and sometimes it's tricky because the title, like I remember when Come From Away was about to preview in New York. I remember talking to several people and none of us could remember the name of the show. It was like, come fly with me. Uh, come, And so that title always felt problematic. 
And now in hindsight that it's such a hit come from my is it just rolls off the tongue and everybody knows what it is. So yeah, again, it's like everything in this industry, you can just never quite predict it. But if you call a show you're in town, I think you can predict that there's a whole percentage of the population that will be very hard to convince how brilliant the show is because the title just puts them off. I was at a mate's place last night. We had a, a double feature. We watched two films. One was a funny thing happened on the way to the forum and um, how to succeed in business without really trying. Yes. <laughs> I just pondered then. I thought the names of those musicals, my goodness, you don't get musicals with a, a title of that length nowadays. And then, of course, I remembered uh, our meeting today and who's your bag daddy or how I started the IRA. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, that, see, this is a show with what is, about, I think, a potentially problematic title because it was, I think it was originally called Bag daddy or, or so that so I know that the writers have played with that title a bit but yeah this is one that you kind of go it's tricky for a show that is sort of a, a dark parody and a very funny show about the you know the, the real life story about an Iraqi defector that went to Germany and his ticket to get into Germany was basically saying I have been working for Saddam Hussein and I know I can tell you all about his chemical you know biological weapons and the weapons of mass destruction and the show really is about the real chain of events that, that went past from him to the German BND, which is the CIA of Germany, to the American CIA. And it went, eventually went right to the top through Colin Powell to George Bush. And they went to war, basically saying, on the evidence of pretty much one person, we know with certainty that Saddam Hussein. And by the time they were saying that to the world, the CIA and the Germans they all kind of knew almost with certainty that nothing that this guy was saying was true. And it only took a few years before, you know, after the war was done where the operative that they called Curveball, who was the, the Iraqi defector, he basically said he made the whole thing up. In fact, he read a lot of it online based on information that, the, you know, that, that some intelligence agencies have put online. And he was just sort of feeding that back to them. So it's a, it's a really incredible uh, true story in a lot of ways that's kind of been fictionalized and played with to be like a dark comedy in some ways. And um, it's a, it's an intriguing show. And luckily for us, because I, I, the concept at this point in the era of COVID is that the whole thing is going to be done uh, live to air, live to the internet uh, for five performances in about two weeks from now. So it's a show that does allow you to, without changing a word of it, um, to put that onto the internet in a way that doing something like Annie wouldn't allow because the, the framing concept of who's your bag daddy is that the eight people that contributed, they're all in like an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting or a, a therapy session. And so that I thought the really great concept that, that Keith and Sam and Stephen who are producing who's your bag daddy came in with was that to justify why we're doing this on a screen and not just, you know, filming a theater production in a theater and putting it out was if we take that therapy session and everybody is having to zoom in, dial into the therapist, then suddenly it makes sense about why we're all on a screen. And then I think we will surprise people with just how far we can take technology and play with what, I mean, I, I guess what I'm saying is if people think they're turning into watch a reading on Zoom, they're going to be very pleasantly surprised because there's a, a lot of technology that allows us to do a heck of a lot of tricks uh, and still keep it live to air. I'm, I'm having a Graham Norton moment. I have to say, Neil, uh, it's on next week, even though we're recording oh, this. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, of this, course, this, of course. This podcast will be dropped on the 21st of June. So, yeah, because you open on the 24th. 
Oh, well, it's on this week then. I should correct yes, and say it's, it's, on, it's, on, it's on in three days. And thanks, if, you're listening, if you're listening in 2026, you've missed it by six years. So, <laughs> so thanks for coming out of tech to talk to us today. <laughs> um, yes. So what was it about it, the, 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 the premise, do you think, which uh, spoke to the creatives that it had to be musicalised? That's a good question. I mean, I think, again, it's in that genre of shows that, you know, the haze does allow to unearth. And... Um, I find it really intriguing over here and working with writers generally, just what it is that triggers in them, you know, the thing of going, that should be dramatized. I, 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 it's the same question I have when Lin-Manuel Miranda reads the, the, you know, the, the biography of Hamilton and then sees in that not only a musical about Hamilton, but then a musical that totally subverts, you know, white America's founding fathers and, and puts that. So it, it's a really good question. And, and, you know, I think the best writers, can just look at something and go, that is a show. Like at, at the end of the day, I think it always comes down to two things though. Any successful musical comes down to two things. Uh, great characters and a great story where, you know, you, you are in totally engaged with one or two of the characters and there are massive conflicts going on that may or may not allow them to get what they want. Um, and that's where something like American Psycho or something like even sort of potentially Muriel's Wedding where they're not a traditional, you know, perfect, uh, follow the rules, find up to make sensible decisions. You can, you can invest in a, in a protagonist that is tricky if you can see inside their brain and understand how they feel about themselves and why they're doing what they're doing. And that's where I think musical theatre, it can be so successful because it's, when you combine uh, music and lyrics in a way that allows a character to stand on stage and to go, here's what I'm thinking. And the rest of the world doesn't know this, but audience, you do come with me. That, that seems to always work. Well, not always. There's plenty, there's plenty of musicals that die, but but that's, that's what makes successful musicals work. Who's your bag daddy's been around for a while. It had an off Broadway season in 2017, but also it was off off Broadway in 2005. So the uh, creatives responded to the, the story very quickly, I think, didn't they? Uh, yeah, I think so. And I think they started with, again, it was a, a novel that one of them read that was, or they heard about the story and then there's a book called Curveball and they read that and then, and then started writing it. And, um, and, you know, in that great New York way, you're allowed, shows are allowed to grow here. Like, you, you, you know, you can write a show and you can get a few friends together to read it and then a producer may come on board and do a 29-hour read and you can work on it. But then you can start shows here in like a 50-seat a theatre or an 80-seat theatre and then if it gets some sort of following that's fine-tuned, you move to your next theatre. And, and the theatre that it ended up in is probably only 150 seats. So, so you know, the haze in Australian terms feels like this tiny theatre of 111 seats. But the reality is um, that's off-Broadway over here. And, and that, that's commercial off-Broadway over here in some cases. Like some of them get bigger than that. But Broadway doesn't really have the 2,000-seat the barns. It's got a couple of them. But there's not that huge gap between the, the small theatres and off-Broadway and and the bigger theaters because even a lot of the Broadway houses are, are 700 to a thousand to 1200 seats. They're not 2000. How do you go about reimagining a, a stage show for an online platform? Because I mean, for a start, there's an absence of a live response. Are all the actors in the same room or are they at home in their various bedrooms and living rooms? Where's the band? Um, is there choreography? 
Yeah, so it, it, if we if we pull this off, and like I said, by the time this goes to air, we're three days away from it. So so fingers crossed. But um, essentially, the first thing I'd say is it's a, it's a technological triumph because the what we've learned during the the quarantine era is that using Zoom to do concerts and things like that is not a medium that works, and certainly can't work for music because the minute you have uh, lag between computers and the internet involved, it's not possible to have a piano in one room and singers in another room singing in time with the piano or even each other. Um, so to make this work, we essentially week one of rehearsals was I was on zoom for, in New York, uh, working through till like 3 a.m. most days, the cast were all in their rooms at home on zoom. And that meant for that week, we could talk about character. We could do dialogue work, but we couldn't really do much singing and we couldn't do any choreography. Week two, which we're just in the middle of now um, in, in real time, is that we've, they've been in a rehearsal room, a big socially distanced rehearsal room with Leah Howard, the choreographer, and Laura Murphy, my assistant director, and Stephen Kramer, the musical director. And that's kind of been the only part of the process that looks anything like what putting a show together normally looks like. So even though they've been spread out more than would be normal and they can't kiss each other when they arrive at rehearsals, um, that, you know, they've been able to learn music sitting down in chairs and with the piano in the room. And then starting this week, which is the start of the huge experiment for all of us, because it's just new ground for everybody, um, technologically and just structurally about doing shows, uh, we move into an enormous Airbnb property in Sydney. And that basically means that there are eight rooms and they all get a room each. So they, we have to keep all the social distancing rules in place. Um, and each of those rooms has to be dressed by Izzy Hudson, our designer, to look like a New York apartment. Um, and there's eight cameras. So each person has one camera. They have a microphone and everything feeds back in real time to a media server. And downstairs, so I'll be in New York on Zoom. Downstairs, there's two stage managers, a sound designer, a lighting designer, uh, Leah, the choreographer. And it's, everybody is wired in through headphones so they can all communicate, including me in New York. Um, and we start building a show. But the building of the show, the planning of it has been like four intensive weeks before rehearsals because we essentially I, I needed to storyboard it like a film and a film that is an eight camera film shoot so that it, it's not just about what the actors are doing it's about what we do with their their, their feed on screen and you know because we have a software that allows us to take their live feed and to change their color and to move it anywhere around the screen and for dance routines of which there, there is choreography in the show um, but they're still within a camera and isolated so we can position them on screen and move them around and also so you know and next week's the big test where after all the pre-planning and all the programming of the software to to take the live footage uh we've got a week basically to to get it all to work and to get it all to be really interesting and to stay engaging for two hours and, and all those sort of questions so it's a huge experiment and one that none of us have been through before because we're, we're, we're largely theater beasts and some of the actors have done a lot of tv work but you know, it's, it's a new challenge as a director. It's a new challenge for all of us. And, and uh, what I can say is it has been huge fun. Like it's been so much fun having, you know, most of the cast are people I've worked with before and I love them dearly and they're friends and this, sitting on, on camera has somehow been a medium that allows everybody to be a, a bit more comedic Focus. and a bit more silly and a bit more focused. It's, yeah, it's been, it's been really great. So fascinating, fascinating exercise, and uh, we look forward to, to seeing it. I guess it also opens up the opportunity for a, a worldwide audience. 
Well, theoretically, yes, but then we are still, because this is also new to everybody, uh, then it comes down to, which I believe is still being debated, whether the, the rights holders uh, will oh, allow course. that to be the case. Yeah, so, so because the world is changing so quickly, and particularly in America where there's, there's, um, you know, there's a lot of um, discussion between American equity and producers and about how the rules will actually work for actors and musicians, um, but the, the bigger question is that the show is still owned by, you know, Music Theatre International or a rights holder and they get to decide whether or not you can put it out to the entire world or whether it just goes to Australia. So, so but theoretically, in a perfect world, yes, it should go to the entire world and a show that is not hugely well-known in global terms could have a global audience. Gee, that's fascinating. That's really interesting. I never thought of something like that. But, yeah, you're, you're up against all of those uh, considerations as well, aren't you? Yeah, and, and I think that will be one of the big changes coming out of COVID in terms of its effect on theatre is, and I think there's going to be many, to be honest, but one is going to be, I believe, the increased amount of um, digital content that comes out of theatre shows. Like, I think most theatre shows will want to be able to film themselves now and and maybe put those out. Uh, but that brings a whole set of complications about how do people get um, compensated for that? And, and are there royalties paid to everybody? And those are the debates that I think are going to be going on crazily in the background at the moment between unions and producers. And hopefully we'll come out with a clear set of rules that everybody knows how it works and can move forward with that. Who's Your Bag Daddy features a, uh, that's the contracted title, um, <laughs> a phenomenal cast. Um, Blake Erickson, Philip Lowe, Laura Murphy, Matthew Predney, Adam Rennie, Katrina Ritalik, Justin Smith, and Troy Sussman. You've got the creme de la creme of musical theatre talent in Australia there. Yeah, look, I guess that's the, um, as much as I despair for everybody in the current environment where every actor that I know doesn't have work and, and, and no one's sure when they will have work, the only upside, if you can be something like Who's Your Bag Daddy that pops up and says, well, we're, we're going ahead, is that, you know, even Katrina at the moment is uh, starring in Come From Away but that at the moment is on hiatus. So we were able to get her and, um, and the roles are very specific too. So it was an interesting one because there's only eight roles in it, but they are all very uh, clearly defined. So it's not like a, it's not like a, an ensemble thing. We go, Oh, anybody that's talented can do it. Um, so it's been a tricky process, but I, I tell you, I think everyone's going to be thrilled with what, what the cast are doing when, when they see their performances. Uh just to finish off, tell me about Back to the Future, the musical. That's uh, been in so yeah, so Back to the creation Future kicked for a while. It has kicked around for a number of years around the world. And um, that's one of the shows that I'm, I'm billed as a co-producer on. But that, that for me is, you know, for someone that I guess is used to developing and creating shows and being what the theatre world knows as a, as a lead producer, um, that I only got involved with that about oh, a year ago. But it... Uh, after a, a false start, maybe five or six years ago, has found its final team, and it was um, it opened in Manchester in the UK two nights before it was closed by COVID. So the good news of that is that it's out in the world and it got very well reviewed, and it's a it's actually a it's surprising the heck out of people because it's, it's a technological triumph that show, like the way that they're doing the illusions in the show and the car itself. Um, I think it took everybody by surprise because I think they went going, oh, yeah, we know what Back to the Future, the musical, is going to look like on stage. And I think it shocked them. 
Uh, the downside, of course, is that they were supposed to run for 12 weeks in Manchester and then be on a pathway that would hopefully, you know, go very quickly to London and then hopefully roll out around the world, which I think everyone's very confident it, it still will. And, and, you know, ironically enough now, theatres are, are available globally <laughs> for the show, but it's a case of, you know, when does that make commercial sense? Because it's a show that will always rely on a tourist audience, both, you know, in London and in New York. And at the moment, there are no tourists in London and New York. So, so um, you know, I guess uh, Colin, the lead producer, will start making decisions when they know with some certainty when the world opens up. But I, I think if you sort of keep watching it for the next one to five years, it, it will be in most theatre markets in the world and be a significant hit. Certainly, that's my hope, with my fingers crossed, because uh, I would love it to be doing that from my selfish point of view. Who, who's written the show, Neil? So it's written by so Bob Zemeckis that, that directed the film um, is involved, and um, so or, or, basically everybody on the film uh, is involved, and that includes Alan Silvestri that has written the music with um, Seth uh, with Glenn Ballard, who you know is um, Jagged Little Pill with Alanis Morissette. So so they really have managed to marry all of the original writers and directors of the film together and then add in a few more theatre people. And it's, it's a really skilled team that have taken the stage. So it, it, always, it always felt like a really good idea to me. And then when I sort of, when I first got involved, there, there had already been a, uh, a workshop presentation. And when I saw that, I sort of went, yeah, this is, this is not only is it a great title, clearly, but it's going to be really artistically done and, and well done. And it will really satisfy the mega fans that exist of Back to the Future because that's, that's always the risk with these shows. Is if you take a title like that, that that people love and they love it in a way that people love Star Wars and they love Harry Potter and, the, and if you take their, their adopted babies from their, from their youth and from their you know, teenage years and early 20s and, and you don't do it well, they will be the first people to revolt and tell you how bad it is. So, so that, and I think that's the most promising thing out of Manchester is the, the mega fans seem to be the ones that are really championing it from the start. And, and they're, they're the, the key group really to start it because you can lose them with two bad songs. You can lose them very quickly. So. Well, Neil, to maintain the illusion of the theatre, I, I better let you get back to rehearsal. Uh, for uh, <laughs> Yes, dinner, dinner break's about to finish. <laughs> <laughs> Who's your Baghdadi or how I started the Iraq war? Let's hope it allows a wonderful new way to experience the magic of the musical. I mean, listeners can uh, find out more about the show and tickets at www.bagdaddymusical.com.au and I'll give more information um, in the, uh, the outplay after we finish. Uh, thanks, Neil, for, for chatting today. Give my regards to Broadway. I will when it reopens. I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> At the moment, there's absolutely nobody there to say to give your regards to, but someday there will be. Oh, good, 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 good. Well, uh, good luck for next week, Chookers. Oh, thanks, Peter. Lovely chatting to you. Who's Your Bag Daddy or How I Started the Iraq War has its premiere online season next week. It runs from Wednesday the 24th of June through to Sunday the 28th of June at 7.30pm nightly. For bookings and more information, go to www.bagdaddymusical.com.au. It's certainly a very exciting venture. Uh, Let's hope that uh, it possibly reaps a new way forward to enjoy the musical, especially in these times of COVID-19. 
The New York Times said it's a critic's pick, an important, cunning, rock-solid musical comedy with a terrible title. So Chookus to Neil and all of the company of the musical, Who's Your Bag Daddy? or How I Started the Iraq War, for next week. Thanks for making us a part of your podcast listening. A new episode of the Stages podcast is released every Thursday, but you probably know that by now. (laughs) I know that many of you have been recommending the podcast to colleagues and friends and neighbours and pals and aunties and uncles. It's much appreciated. Until next time, I'm Peter Ayers and you've been listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creators. Today, my guest was Neil Gooding. Keep warm, keep well, I'll catch you next time.